In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the places we live and the horrors within. You know, we're extremely lucky to have so many great artists on our team who create the illustrations for each episode. One of them, the artist known as Sabu, has created some of our iconic movie posters for productions like The Whistlers, Boraska, and our Christmas and Halloween episodes. Well, Sabu is back and ready to create another stunning poster for us. But this time, we want you to pick which story we've done on the podcast to immortalize as a movie poster. Here's how it's going to work. In the show notes for this week's episode, you'll find a link to a form where you can submit up to three of our stories that you think would make great posters. We'll tally the results and pick the five most requested stories to be finalists. I'll talk about the contest once we have the finalists, but for now, check out the link to the form and submit the stories you want to see as a movie poster. Turn our audio nightmares into visual ones. And speaking of audio nightmares, we have a fine selection for you right here. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a painter going through what must be one of the hardest things to experience, the inability to paint due to rheumatoid arthritis. The loss of her passion has left her struggling. But in this tale, shared with us by author C.A. Linnae, the artist nonetheless finds a way to express her emotions. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Dan Zapula, Alexis Bristow, Nicole Doolin, Sarah Thomas, and Addison Peacock. So by all means, put yourself into your work, but be mindful of how you feel when you're doing so. Otherwise, you might face uncomfortable truths when you study a reflection on a self-portrait. My name is Margaret. I'm 23 years old. I'm an artist, a painter. My mother's name is Mary. My father's name is Tom. I can get out of bed. I can go to the bathroom. I can brush my teeth. 
I can go to my appointment. My familiar mantra runs through my head. My therapist told me that, on the hard days, on the days that my hands curl into feral claws with straining sinew, on the days my muscles scream and refuse to cooperate, on the days my thoughts begin with, I'd be better off and end with dead. On these days, she says I should take my day one step at a time to focus on who and what I am, where I've come from, what I'll do, anything to combat the pain, the depression, the furious anger. I roll to my side and use the twisted clubs that pass for my hands to push myself up and sling my legs over the side of the bed. I tip myself onto my feet and stumble to the bathroom. I piss. I yawn. I glance at the toothbrush waiting patiently in its holder, bristles dry and stiff after numerous days without use. Opting for the already uncapped mouthwash instead, I take a swig. Swishing the wash in my mouth, I let my gaze float around the bathroom. It's definitely seen better days, but it's definitely seen worse. Besides a pile of dirty laundry, some scummy shower tiles, and an overflowing wastebasket, it's not too bad. Definitely not the level of gross I know I can make it. Forgoing the mess, my eyes settle on the spotted mirror and the photos stuck to it with tape. Me and my parents laughing into the camera, arms flung around each other with me sandwiched in the middle. Tom, Margaret, Mary. My cousin's bachelorette party, a gaggle of girls with their eyes closed, arms in the air, mouths open in silent catcalls and shrill screams. Me and Sid crossed eyes and bulging mouths, posing like spies, kissing. I spit the mouthwash into the sink. I should take her down. I should remove the reminders of us. If it's not an inspiration to work through my depression and anger, then it's an obstacle and should be removed. I should take it down, but I leave it up. The alarm clock by my bed reads 5.37 a.m. Almost time for my appointment at 7 o'clock. No point going back to sleep to get up in a few minutes. I don't bother getting changed. I didn't undress for bed yesterday, so I'm really already dressed, right? I spot a sweater laying on the top of clothes at the foot of my bed. I grab it with my wrists and bring it to my nose. I take a cautious sniff. Doesn't smell bad, at least not to me. I throw it on the bed, mash my balled up hands into the bottom opening and try to bulldoze my way into the rest of it. I mostly succeed. It's a bit lopsided. Fuck it. And fuck anyone who cares. And fuck everything. And fuck Sydney. 
I slip my arm through my bag hanging off the post of my bed and make my way to the front door. The perk of being in a studio apartment? No doors besides the front door need to be opened or shut. Not even the bathroom when you never have company anymore. I never locked the door last night, so I go ahead and try to take the doorknob between my forearms. My bag slides into the crook of my elbow. My arms slip off the knob. I take a deep breath. Readjust the bag on my shoulder and try again. The bag slips down my arm. The doorknob won't turn. Come on, you stupid mother. I refuse to start over. Contorting my body, I force my forearms closer together and twist my whole torso over to the right, willing the damn door open. The knob finally turns. I hook the ajar door with my foot and swing it open. Once out in the hallway, I turn back to close it. When Sid had moved out, my dad tied a string onto the handle so I could pull it shut myself. I try to slip the string between my frozen, gnarled fingers. No go. I sigh and drop to my knees. My arm, not carrying the purse, goes to the door. I gently twirl my arm until the string is wrapped around my appendage and pull the door shut. I climb to my feet and take a deep breath, letting the string unravel from my arm. My name is Margaret. I'm 23 years old. I'm an artist, a painter. My mother's name is Mary. My father's name is Tom. I can go downstairs. I can leave the building. I can catch the light rail. I can make it to my appointment. I briskly walk to the elevator. When it comes, it's blessedly empty. I hit the buttons G and 2 with my elbow. Two buttons instead of one is okay, but at least I hit any at all. My therapist would be proud of me, looking for the silver lining. I ride the elevator down and shove my way out the front door. I refuse to use the handicap button except to enter. Once outside, I plunge my hands into my pants pockets. If I do that, no one even notices my mangled hands. I walk the four blocks to the light rail. I sit down so I can maul my way through my bag until I find the lanyard that has my pass. It falls just as I see the lights of the arriving train pull in. I kneel on the ground and try to retrieve my pass. It is like trying to pick up a dime on the ground. Substantial enough to be hopeful you can pick it up. Thin enough to slip through your fingers each and every time. People are beginning to step off the train. Third try. Third time failing. People begin to board the train. My 
breathing starts to pick up and my heart thuds against my ribs. I can feel heat flood my cheeks. Fourth fail. A pair of feet halting right beside me. A voice. Here, let me help you. A young guy, maybe my age. Good looking. Jean jacket, messy man bun, beautiful eyes messenger bag. I snarl at him. I snap at him. I take his offer of help, break it in half, and spit at him. I got it! I grope at the lanyard, which by now is laughing at me, taunting me. Just pick me up. It's not rocket science. It's not hard. Just pick me up. Failure for a fifth time. His shoes are still in my field of vision. He kneels down beside me. His fingers gently close over the lanyard. He holds his hand out to me. I try to snatch it from him, but my hands aren't any more cooperative just because I'm being humiliated. I paw at the lanyard and it drops back on the ground. I said I fucking got it! Are you deaf or something? Jesus, back the fuck off! His eyebrows draw down. His complexion darkens. The gentle hands, the lithe fingers, tighten and harden. Fucking bitch. His condemnation is sharp and final. Almost as ugly as my curling claws. He turns and walks away, boarding the light rail car just as the doors snick shut. The train pulls away, and I'm left alone on the platform. I collapse onto the bench that still holds my purse and take a deep breath. My name is Margaret. I'm 23 years old. I'm an artist, a painter. My mother's name is Mary. My father's name is Tom. I can pick up my lanyard. I can go home. I can kill myself. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to go through life with hands that can't paint, can't hold a toothbrush, can't even pick up a goddamned lanyard. I want out, but I can't even do that without help. I know, I've tried. My old workplace was tall enough I could throw myself from the top of the building, but I couldn't open the door to the roof. And it turns out that even if someone else opened the door, well, it's really awkward to fling yourself off a building with a bunch of smokers standing around and chatting like life is just such a funny thing. I tried running a bath and plugging my toaster into the outlet. My apartment is old and doesn't have a GFI, so it could have worked. But my hands... 
I feel like an idiot even thinking of them as hands anymore. Couldn't keep a grip on the toaster, and I wound up dropping it into the toilet and breaking it instead. I can't take pills without assisting arms and hands. I can't pull the trigger of a gun, and it's not like I own one, or like I'd even know where to get one for that matter. I can't hold a razor firmly enough to slice through tendon and vein. I stare at the ground and my pass. I just want to be anywhere but here. Want to shut everything out. But I can't even bury my face in my hands. My stupid, useless, traitorous hands. Honey? It's a woman with a baby carrier strapped to her chest. She swoops down and picks up my lanyard like it's not the most difficult task in the world. Part of me wants to kill her for making it look so fucking easy. Just a bit. Did you drop this? She holds out the lanyard to me with a smile. I just stare at her. Her smile fades and she looks me over her gaze resting on my hands. She settles her eyes on my face and then tucks my pass into my still-open purse. I feel more than see her smile. I feel her mouth undulating, writhing, groaning, crackling with pity. She adjusts her carrier with ease and walks away. I don't remember the walk home. My wrist stings from where I throw it against the square blue button that slowly swings the door to my apartment building open. I wait impatiently as the elevator stops on the second floor. This time, I see no silver lining to punching two buttons. I step off onto my floor, take the hall to my apartment. Try to open my door. Again. And again. And again, 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 again. I hammer the door with my forearm and kick it with my feet, ignoring the shooting pains that arc up my leg and the heightening sensitivity in my arms. I shriek and fling myself at it ferociously. Open up, you stupid fucking piece of shit door! Stupid! screams trail off and I slide down the door, sobbing and cradling my already bruising arms in my lap. I try to calm down and take a shaky breath. My name is Margaret. I'm 23 years old. I'm an artist. A painter. My mother's name is Mary. My father's name is Tom. I can stand up. I can try again. I can focus. I can open my front door. I don't move. Not for a long while. When I do, 
admits not to open the door. My phone has fallen out of my bag and shows one missed call. My therapist. Right. I shove the phone against the door long enough that the button on the side activates my voice assistant. Once I see the microphone pop up, I speak. Check voicemail. You have one missed call. Tuesday, June 1st, 7.47 a.m. Hi, Margaret. It's Dr. Julie. Just calling to check in on you. Your appointment was at 7. I hope today is manageable and that you are okay. Please let me know how your rheumatoid is doing. Remember, breathe and take the day one step at a time. See you next week. End of new messages. I take a deep breath and get onto my knees to try again. Maybe the thousandth time is the charm. After several more attempts, I finally make it into my apartment. I shuffle my back against the door until it closes with a soft click. I walk to the bathroom and stare into the mirror. My hair is a scraggy brown mess, still pulled back in the ponytail my mother had put there for me two days ago. Blurry, smudged eyes from makeup also done by my mother the same day. There's a stain on my sweater I hadn't noticed, and the tag is sticking up in the front, pointing at my chin, advertising the brand and XL size to the world. I have crusty, dry skin ringing my nostrils, and a smear of blackish-red paint above my right eyebrow from yesterday's painting attempt. The brush is still on the floor where I threw it. Paint hardened. Tool ruined. The canvas on my easel is ruptured where I put my clubbed fists through it. My old self and Sydney take in my appearance derisively from their photo on the mirror. They cross their eyes at me. They smirk in seductive poses. They kiss to show what I'm missing. <laughs> like I don't already know. I turn my focus back to my appearance and concentrate only on my face, trying to make everything else fade away. The lights in the bathroom are dim. My breathing slows, and I take in my pale complexion, high cheekbones, sunken eyes. I stare, and I stare. After a minute, it's like it's no longer me looking out from the mirror. My skin is deathly pale, cheekbones gone to be replaced with a brooding and wide-set mouth, cracked and blistered. My deep-set eyes sink into my face and grow in size until they blot out my entire forehead. Black. Clinton. <laughs> I scream and stumble back from the mirror. When I look back, it's me again. Margaret, a painter who has both a mother and a father and should be so happy that things aren't worse. But I look at the pictures again 
and am filled with a sudden, choking fury. Better off. Better off dead. Better to be that thing in the mirror than be a useless sack of flesh quickly burning through life with righteous anger. Then I wouldn't have to look at the hideous photos from a previous life. My knuckles scrape the painted glass in an attempt to remove the photo booth pictures of me and Sydney. I scrape. I rub. I claw. The two girls are still kissing, and I hear my sobs tearing like a hacksaw. I clumsily upend the full-waist basket and hurl the heavy ornamental receptacle at the mirror. and the trash can clatters onto the sink. I lift it with my forearms and toss it at the mirror again and again and again until jagged pieces of glass frame the damning photos. I use my sinuous hands to paw and brush the fragments away, blood welling and dripping onto the countertop. I think again, better to be that thing in the mirror. Better off dead. The picture finally comes free. My hands are ragged and useless for shredding the photo, unable to rip their stupid goddamned faces in half. Fuck it. I hold the picture between my clenched hands and put the glossy paper to my mouth, teeth gnashing down on girls now smeared red them apart, shredding them with my teeth, ripping over and over and over. I don't know how long I've been sitting on the floor, shuddering with exhaustion and shutting down from an overload of emotion. I become distantly aware of my mantra running like a teleprompter in my head. A painter... My mother's name is Mary. My father's name is Tom. My name is Margaret. I'm 23 years old. I'm an artist. A painter. My mother's name is Mary. My father's name. I suck in a breath. And another. And another. Until I can draw a full and deep breath. I resolutely restart my mantra. Begin at the beginning. My name is Margaret. Hi, Margaret. I'm 23 years old. Such a good age. I'm an artist. A painter. I know. I've watched you paint. My mother's name is Mary. What a lovely name. My father's name is Tom. Can I paint too? I can hear something. I know. It's me. Hello. I hear whispering. It comes from everywhere. I haven't repeated my mantra aloud but it's been answered all the same. The very real voice sounds like dry leaves stuck in a spider's web and rustling in a soft wind. 
That's a very lovely thought. You paint with more than your hands. My breath is barely wheezing through my parted lips. Has anyone ever said so? I see it. The colors and imagery are so bright in your mind. Why don't you try painting it? Just try. My eyes dart around the room. Where is it coming from? Over here, silly. Don't you recognize me? The voice stops fluttering about like a breeze, and I can hear it coming from a shadowy corner. I focus and see two very large eyes in the dark. Black. Glinting. There. Better now you can see me. It's lovely finally meeting you. I shake my head. My hands throb. This is wrong. What were you painting last night? I glance over at the canvas I'd destroyed. It's a ruin of bright colors. The self-portrait my therapist had suggested I paint had turned garish and grotesque when my hands wouldn't steady enough to make precise details. I had let my hate fuel me, and, in a temper... I had blotted out my eyes, black circles growing larger and larger before mashing the blackened brush into the red and tearing into my mouth. The distorted face that looked back at me saw the light of the small apartment for no more than ten seconds before I threw the brush and mutilated the canvas. I slowly drag my eyes from the canvas and back to the corner. <sighs> hallucination from blood loss. I painted the portrait last night and that's why my mind is grabbing onto it right now. I'm having a breakdown. People have those. That's what I'm having. That's it. My life is so full of shit right now, I just can't take it anymore. I take a deep breath. is Margaret. I'm 23 years old. I'm an artist. 
a painter. My mother's name is Mary. My father's name is Storm. I can stand up. I can fix my hands. I am not going crazy. Breakdown or not, crazy or not, Margaret, you should really tend to those hands. I stand up. I look to the bathroom. I don't know where to start. You keep the bandages below the sink. The antiseptic is in the medicine cabinet. <laughs> I laugh. It sounds higher than normal, but I stumble toward the bathroom, leaving small drips of blood in my wake. My hands are slightly looser. My muscles are not as taut as they were this morning. I'm able to, very ineptly, open the cabinet and grab the bandages. I don't bother with the antiseptic. Use the medicine. You don't want the hands getting worse now, do you? Grumbling, I grab the hydrogen peroxide and, using a mixture of my hands and mouth, I open the bottle and dump the liquid over my hands letting it drip into the sink. It stings a little, but I can barely feel it. Next, I wrap the bandages around my hands. It's not a beautiful job, but I'll have to change the wrappings in a few hours anyway. There now. That feels better, doesn't it? Now I think it would be best to lock the front door. You haven't been doing that lately. You never know what could get in. I feel groggy. Far away. But the suggestion is logical enough. I drag my feet over to the front door and fumble with the lock before turning it with numb fingers. The room is slightly hazy on the edges, and my mouth feels dry. I'm not sure what's happening. I try to sit on the floor, but I fall instead, landing on my back. My head swims. Don't worry. It won't hurt. I promise. I turn my head to the shadowy corner. A long, spindly arm dips out of the darkness like a paintbrush tracing watercolor. The rest of the body follows. A second elongated, spidery arm pokes out from the torso, jutting sideways. Fingers, grotesquely lengthened, curl through many joints. The knuckles knock on the ground as she drags herself further into the light. Her body is horizontal with the floor, raised on the front arms and two back legs that protrude from the sides of her hips. Stringy brown hair hangs in front of her pale face. Beyond that curtain, her lips stretch across her face, split and caked with dried, black blood. I squeeze my eyes shut and desperately cling to my mantra. This isn't happening. Breakdown. I'm having a breakdown. My name is Margaret. 
I'm 23 years old. I'm an artist. A painter. You're not an artist anymore. You don't even try. You've given up. I'm an artist. A painter. My mother's name is Mary. My father's name is Tom. You don't deserve the love of your parents. Let me love them. Let me paint them. Let me see this world and all of its beauty. My name is Margaret. I feel her rank breath on my face, humid and warm. My eyes open when I feel gnarled hands press into my shoulders, sharp elbows angled back like wings. My own angel of death. I'm 23 years old. Her mouth, gaping and raw, lowers, agonizingly slow, a thin line of spittle dripping onto my cheek. Then her lips, cracked and bleeding, are against mine. My body feels light. My pain peels away, layer by layer, dry paint chipping away from a portrait. Her lips move against mine, and I feel them become soft, supple. I am an artist, a painter. I am the painter now. She pulls away with a sigh. I stare up into her enormous dark eyes, glistening and reflecting the light from the room. Reflecting my fading self, I am merely the ghost of a girl, an empty canvas and cracked watercolors. My name is Margaret. Her hair, no longer stringy, brushes over my face. I am 23 years old. Pale, fair skin softens and her arms rest gently against mine. I am an artist. I paint. Fingers with the correct joints curl painfully inward. My mother is Mary. Her dark eyes, smaller and lighter, sharpen and flare with pain. Fingers spasm against my crumbling shoulders. My father is Tom. She takes a deep, calming breath. I can stop. I can stop this. I can't. I am a ripple in a pond, getting further and further away. I am the faintest trace of a setting sun on the sky, the last vestiges of light. And live. My name is Margaret. I am 20, 23 years old. I am. I, I paint. My mother's name. My mother's name is. My father. I can't. My.
Owning your first house is a thrill. Not everyone can be a property owner these days, so those that are no doubt feel grateful, even if the house is a little bit of a fixer-upper. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Diggles, there's something a little off about this gentleman's starter home. You see, every other house on that street has an attic, but his has no way to get in. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, David Alt, and Penny Scott Andrews. So check the space upstairs, even if it means knocking your way through, and be prepared for what you find. After all, there's likely a reason it was hidden away, and keep that in mind if you're going to build a loft conversion. Whilst the builder was talking to me, I found my concentration waning. I was focusing on his shoes, specifically on how dry the paint spatters on his boots were, and whether or not the drops were likely to roll off them and soak irreversibly into my newly laid landing carpet. Why is it they never take shoes off? Yeah, do you see the problem? The builder pointed up. I refocused. What problem? You don't have a loft hatch. We've done a few loft conversions down this road and the hatch is always here. We both looked up at the landing ceiling. A smooth, unbroken expanse of plaster greeted us. I shook my head. I've no idea. It was like it when I bought the place. How'd they do a survey of the roof void? They didn't. I couldn't really afford that too. I should state at this point that I'm not a total imbecile. Okay, well... Maybe I am, but you need to understand that I didn't have a lot of money. It was all I could do to save up enough to buy a very small late 1900 Victorian terrace in a vaguely okay part of town. It was either proceed without the cost of a survey, or sign on for another year in my rented shithole. Given those two options, I decided to forego the survey. Maybe not that smart, but a decision far more prevalent in my generation. The builder opened his mouth, but stifled his surprise. His face, however, said it all. Moronic millennial. I understand that'll put the price up. Thing is, we don't know what the condition of the loft space is up there. If it's bad, it'll really start to add up. I wasn't interested by this point. I just wanted to get more space out of the tiny, two-bedroom townhouse I'd saved up for years to just afford. If I hadn't been so desperate, I might have paused for a moment. However, I didn't. Okay, well, can't you just open it up and then quote me? That way, if it's too much, I'll just get a ladder put in and then I get access. And if it's all okay, we'll go for the conversion. Can't do the conversion for a while, but I can open it up next week and we'll see what we see, I guess. He wandered towards the staircase. My eyes followed his boots, relieved to see my carpet no worse for wear. In hindsight, I'd have done the loft conversion before laying fresh carpet. In hindsight, I'd have done a lot of things differently. It was actually two weeks and many chasing phone calls later before the builder returned with his exuberant labourer. I watched in dismay as they took out devastatingly large sledgehammers and inelegantly swung them upwards into the ceiling, passing effortlessly through the plaster as though it were parchment. 
Bits of broken plaster rained down into my hallway and a thin film of plaster dust started to settle. I watched horrified for several minutes as the carnage continued, as they put down the hammers and climbed onto ladders with a saw that looked equally disproportionate for the job. I decided then that watching my newly acquired property being partially demolished was too much for me. I'm not adding much to this. If you could give me an estimate once you've checked it out, that would be great. I've got to head off for a bit. I didn't wait for a reply, just ran downstairs, grabbed my jacket, and headed off to the pub to wait out the chaos. When I opened the front door a few hours and several pints later, it was with a tinge of dread. I wondered what awaited me, half expecting to walk into a snowy wonderland of plaster dust. I, however, was pleasantly surprised. The dust had been cleared up, the stairway, the hall, and the banisters all spotless. On the kitchen counter was a brief note. Not as bad as it could be. I'll get you a quote. Loft does need to be emptied first, though, so I've left you our spare ladder. I was surprised. I had assumed the loft was probably just filled with insulation from some government scheme designed to improve the efficiency of old properties, or nothing at all. However, the note implied there was something in the loft that needed removing. I hadn't put anything up there, and in any case, why would you put something in there and cover it over? I was curious to see what they'd found. I walked upstairs, pleased to see the landing had also been hoovered clear. I was also amazed at the neatness of the hole they'd cut into the ceiling. A neat square with what looked like perfect 90-degree corners, completely belying the blunt instrument used to make it. A paint-stained ladder ran from the void down to the landing. I stepped up and poked my head into the darkness. I quickly realized this wasn't like my parents' far newer and more modern house and wouldn't have a light fitted, so I descended again and grabbed my hiking head torch. I flicked the beam on as I poked my head into the roof space. To my pleasant surprise, the loft had already been boarded, albeit a long time ago from the looks of things. Dark wood floorboards ran the length of the loft space, which was far larger than I was expecting. It was also devoid of insulation. Instead, the space was largely empty, save from tapestries of cobwebs that hung in drapes from the ancient purlins. At the very far end of the loft, I saw what the builder had been referring to, a pile of objects under a sheet. I walked over to them. On closer inspection, they weren't a pile of objects. Rather, it was a chest, a lamp, and something lumpy with an old blanket thrown over it. I opened the chest and looked inside. It contained more blankets thrown over an old pile of books. I picked one up and looked at the title. Jewish Mythology. I idly flicked through a few pages before tossing it back into the pile. Retelling this now, you're probably wondering why I didn't look further, but I've never held a lot of stock with the mythical. I'm a data analyst. I deal in facts. I'm from a science background, which is partly what makes retelling this story so much harder. Believe me, I wish I'd done more digging. If I had, my life would have been very different. Once I'd closed the chest, I pulled at the blanket-covered lump. The blanket, which turned out to be more of a dust sheet, slid off easily, causing a gas cloud of dust to mushroom into the air, stinging my eyes and causing me to cough. Once settled, 
It exposed something that caused me to hold my breath and take a few paces backwards. An antique wooden settle was sat before me. In it was sat a tailor's mannequin. It looked old, made to last in a way that anything modern just wasn't. It was carved out of a heavy hardwood. It was probably worth a fortune. Two things about it unsettled me. The first was that it had a face. Nothing detailed, just two holes for eyes and a stoically straight line for a mouth, all crudely scratched into the wood with a sharp implement. The second thing was that the mannequin's forearms were strapped to the arms of the chair with strips of heavy leather braced with metal buckles. I cautiously approached the chair. At this close proximity, I could see one last detail that I'd missed. Three small letters had been scratched into the mannequin's forehead. Together, they read, MET. They gave it a lopsided appearance, I realized, because they were very off-center. This upset my OCD no end, and I leaned in to look. I could just make out some rough scarring of the wood to the left of the word and a slight depression where it looked like somebody had crudely sanded it. I licked my finger and ran it over the wood. As the dust came away and my saliva darkened the wood, I could just make out the signs of the letter E. Idly, I scratched the outline of the letter, wondering who'd done this. I reached out and cautiously tugged at one of the mannequin's arms. It was heavy, but moved easily as though recently oiled. The old leather fastenings creaked as the limb pulled against them. What was this? My scientific brain struggled to think creatively as to why someone would put this up here. I felt nervous, the sinister overtones not lost on me. I was also hopeful. I'd been stretched pretty thinly, financially speaking, when buying this place. If this mannequin was as old as it looked, despite the obtuse vandalism, I might be getting a payday. If my university daytime TV had taught me anything, it was that shit like this was collectible. And if it was collectible, it was worth something. I found myself tugged sharply into consciousness. I rolled over in bed, my mobile phone rolling down my chest and falling onto the floor with a gentle thud. The movement caused the screen to light up, a glowing rectangle on the floor, illuminating the room in a green hue. I leaned over and looked at it. The time was half two a.m. The last thing I remember was internet searching for the value of antique mannequins before, as usual, falling asleep with my phone still clasped in my stupid hand. I laid in the dark and wondered what had woken me. Probably the train line. I'd not realized when I bought the house how near the train line it was. With viewings organized seemingly around the train schedule, I hadn't found out until too late. Anyway, it was my house and I loved it. However, as my clouded brain started to work, I realized the trains weren't running at this hour. I listened carefully to the noises of the house at night, trying to hear something different. It came. I heard a tapping and a creaking coming from directly above me. All went silent for a moment, causing me to question my hearing. Then it came again, only stronger this time, followed by a wooden scraping sound. All became silent. My heart pounded, 
and I listened past the tinnitus-inducing roar of blood pumping through my head. I heard nothing. Probably just mice, I placated myself. Maybe they'd been disturbed by all the moving around in the loft. I probably should have gone to look, but I didn't. I just laid in the darkness, listening to more sounds, before finally drifting back into a fitful sleep. After a sluggish day at work, I'd built up the courage to investigate the noises in the loft. I donned my head torch and climbed the loft ladder. All looked normal. I mentally measured the dimensions. I came to the conclusion that the settle with the mannequin was sat directly over my bedroom, and most likely responsible for the noise. I studied the mannequin for a moment. The dull, unseeing eyes gazed at me. I felt myself drawn to it, so beautifully crafted as it was. The limbs, I studied them, carved from a rich mahogany. The arms ended in beautifully jointed hands contrasting to the legs which cut off abruptly at rounded points, giving them the look of giant wooden pins. I tore my eyes off it and looked at the settle in which it was sat. It looked heavy, oak-carved. It was probably worth more than the mannequin come to think of it. I wondered if it had succumbed to rodent infestation, it being the only thing near where the noises had come from. I studied it, but couldn't see any gnaw holes. Then I made a mistake. I could see a latch underneath where the mannequin was sat and realized it was storage. Maybe that was how they'd gotten in. I unstrapped the mannequin, the metal buckles fastening the leather initially resistant, and with effort, the wooden frame was enormously heavy. I bear-hugged the mannequin out of the settle and placed it onto the floor. The limbs splayed out like those of a grotesque, discarded doll. I pulled back the settle's latch, lifted the wooden lid, and looked inside. A few old books lay in the bottom alongside some assorted haberdashery. Rolls of cotton, some old scissors, and a very old tin of needles, but nothing else. Certainly nothing rodenty. Confused, I picked up the mannequin and dumped it back into the seat, before returning to the landing and an early night. I didn't wake up that night. Instead, I dreamed. I'm not usually a dreamer, at least not in the literal sense. But that night, it was vivid. I was laying paralyzed in bed, looking helplessly up into the face of the mannequin leaning over the bed. It leered at me. The previously inanimate face now filled with purpose. The etched line of its mouth twisted into a sneer. I remember how tall it had looked, stretched high into the ceiling on those slender pin legs, filling the room like a giant tarantula. It was leaning over me, focusing on something that I couldn't quite see. I could see one of its hands, the beautifully articulated fingers pressing down on my chest, and the other arm moved back and forth, but the hand was out of sight. That was all that I remember. At that point, I must have woken up. I'd slept through the night, but might as well not have. My brain felt ruined, and my body numb. As I rolled over in bed, every bit of me ached. As I rolled, I felt the strangest sensation, like I was pulling the bedclothes with me, as though I was somehow stuck. 
I jerked the bedsheets away from me and felt a sharp pain in my thigh. Panicking, I gently eased the sheet back. I was almost sick. There before me was a line of twenty or so perfect stitches sewing the bedclothes to my thigh. The skin was red and puckered around them. What the fuck? I panicked, unsure of what to do. How the fuck could this happen? For a brief moment, the same part of my brain took control, telling me I was dreaming. I took a deep breath and tried to tell myself it wasn't real. I looked down. It was real. The stitches were still there, impossibly neat blue thread running through my skin and into the bedsheets, each stitch hole red-ringed and sore. My brain slammed into overdrive and the room started to spin. I threw up onto the floor. I pulled myself out of bed and limped to the bathroom, carrying the bedsheet with me. I took some nail scissors from the bathroom cabinet and, with shaking fingers, I tried to snip the cotton. At first, all I managed to do was get the edge of the blade under the cotton, but the feeling of the thread tugging at my skin and the pull of the bedsheet were too alien. I turned and vomited into the bath, the smell of bile rising to fill the room. I held my breath and tried to stop myself from vomiting a third time. I fumbled again with the stitches, this time making it a bit further, all the while fighting off nausea. I finally managed to snip through all the stitches, and then, carefully, painfully, pulled the cut thread out of my skin. I stared at the pile of blue thread with horror, still not believing what had happened. I got up on shaking legs, grabbed my head torch, and made my way to the base of the ladder leading into the loft space. I looked up, and using what little courage remained, I ascended. It took me a good few seconds before I could bring myself to turn on the beam. When I eventually did, my heart stopped as I stared around the space. The settle now sat empty. The mannequin was gone. I was pretty shocked, but it did at least give my dream validity, in that it was much more than a dream. The thought of this made my veins run cold. I didn't know what to do. It wasn't anywhere in sight. What if it comes back? I still couldn't believe this was real, and so struggled to take any action at all. Rather, I chose to stand in the middle of the loft, brain boiling over. I finally figured that rather than letting my scientific brain dismiss the chest of books, I'd better have a look through, given that it was my only link to the mannequin. I opened the lid and rifled through a few titles. I came across Jewish mythology, magic of the golem, and sorcery, invocation, and conjuring. I started to see where this was going, and I didn't like it. But after last night, I was starting to believe it. Flicking through the books, I came to some bookmarked pages. The first of these was in Magic of the Golem. The book was very old and the language hard to follow, but it seemed to illustrate how to create a magical servant from inanimate objects. There was an etching on the opposite page that illustrated someone drawing four letters onto the forehead of a clay man. Emmet, it read, 
which according to the manuscript meant truth in Hebrew. Alternatively, met translated to dead. What had I done? I thought back to my interference with the creature. But none of this made any sense. Why would you go to these lengths to build something like this? Something so unnatural? I found the answer to my question a few minutes later, when I picked out one last book from the bottom of the chest. It wasn't ornate like the others, just a simple, plain, leather-bound diary. I pulled it out from the trunk, sank into the now vacant chair, and started to read. It was mostly banal miscellanea. It told me very little other than a previous occupant of my house had been a tailor. But it got more interesting in the last few pages. The entries stopped discussing fabrics, onerous commissions, and fussy customers. An incident was mentioned. Vague, but it implied that it had left my predecessor unable to work properly. Further entries talked about failing to deliver on orders and loss of business. Some entries after this were just long rants, cursing bad luck and looming poverty. I assumed written whilst drunk, given the legibility of the handwriting. They went on like this for a while, until they stopped altogether for a period of two weeks or so. When they started up again, the tone became far more optimistic. The entries started talking about a solution to the problem, a way of getting a helper that wouldn't need to be paid. A few more entries passed, but they were all cryptic and increasingly paranoid. They didn't go into detail, but they kept referencing chapters in books that concerned things like correct construction materials and the importance of simple commands. Given the kind of books I'd found in the trunk, I got no prizes for guessing the chapters the diary mentioned came from one of those. The diary's author was coming across less like a tailor and more like Victor Frankenstein. The final connection to Shelley's novel was made when I came across a diary entry that simply read, It Lives. At that point, the entries stopped. A golem. He made a fucking golem. I leaned forward in the settle and stretched. My back was starting to hurt, and reading by head torchlight was starting to hurt my eyes. I rubbed them and gave them a break for a few moments. I cast a quick, careful glance at the loft hatch, half expecting the creature to be peering at me with its inscrutable gaze. It wasn't there. Instead, I saw only the loft's dust motes drift in and out of the torch beam. I refocused on the diary, eager to see what the hell I'd gotten myself into. I flicked through empty pages until I came across three final entries several weeks later. They first sounded panicked. Whatever it was had started to exhibit odd behavior, sewing obsessively, and not just the tailor's fabrics. I read further and went cold. The entry read, It appears in my room at the dead of night. I don't know what it wants, but it won't respond to me anymore. It has a mind all of its own. This is no longer the creature that I created. There can be no other explanation. I think it has been possessed. I quickly moved on to the next entry. It won't die. I took matters into my own hands. Nothing to do now but undo this abomination, but I can't. 
I approached it quietly when it was working and hit it with my hammer. It tried to turn and I hit it again. I kept going until I couldn't lift my arm and it lay still on the floor. I left the room only momentarily, and when I came back, it had gone. I need to consult my books. I can't go on with this heathen under my roof. The final entry was shorter, and unfortunately for me, cryptic. My occult research has paid off. I've finally found a solution. That was it. I flicked through the diary, my disappointment growing with each empty page. I looked over at the pile of occult literature I dragged out of the settle. If the problem came from those books, it's likely the solution came from them too. I studied the pile and reasoned that the only title that was strictly occult was Sorcery, Invocation and Conjuring. I picked it up and started to flick through, looking for a clue. I got to about halfway through the book, and as I turned the page, a small square of black fabric slipped out and drifted to the floor. I looked at the page. It was titled, Immobilizing an Errant Spirit. I skim-read the page and realized quickly that this was the solution the diary had referred to. I hoped it would work for me, too. According to the book, I needed to draw a pentagram on the floor and read some words that the book quoted. I should add that these meant nothing to me, and reading them to myself then I felt kind of foolish. But if they were all that stood between me and a psychotic automaton seamstress, then I'd read them. Hell, I'd have read the shipping forecast too if that would have helped. I made my way back downstairs and grabbed a marker pen from my bag. The book didn't state what to draw the pentagram out of, and I'm pretty sure the marker pens weren't a thing then, but I was all out of sheep's blood, so it would have to do. I went into the bedroom and looked down at the fresh carpet I'd had laid as I moved in. I dropped my hands and knees and started to lift it. I should add that whilst this was a desperate time, the carpet wasn't cheap, and I still had a student's frugality running through my veins. After some heaving, the carpet came free of the tacks holding it down. I rolled it back so that the room's threshold was clear, exposing the newspaper beneath. I grabbed this up in handfuls to expose bare floorboards. I studied them for a moment. I could just make something out in the dust. I brushed the dust away, trying not to choke on the billows of it that filled the air. As I peered through streaming eyes, I could see a rough, very faded pentagram drawn in the floorboards, in what I assumed was chalk. It was faint, but clearly there. I guessed this was his bedroom too. I wasn't sure if the pentagram would do the job as was, so I took my black marker pen and followed over the lines until it was a thick, bold outline on the floorboards. I spent the rest of the evening trying to get the time to pass. I read books, watched TV, played video games, and anything else I could do whilst keeping one ear open for the tapping of the golem approaching. Eventually, it got to an hour where it didn't feel ridiculous heading up to bed. I'd spent a few weeks in the US when I was ten. One souvenir from the family holiday was a heavily polished Louisville Slugger baseball bat that my dad bought me. It had been hanging on my wall and was now lying next to me under the bed along with the occult book, opened in readiness at the right page. I'd pulled the covers up 
and laid quietly in the dark, waiting. I woke up with a start. Moonlight shone through the gap in the curtains that I'd only half pulled. I'd failed at my plan to stay vigilant. I couldn't see a clock without moving, but guessed the time was about 2am. I listened for the sounds that awoken me. It was coming from the hallway. I gently pulled the covers down until I could see through the open door to the hallway beyond. It was there, mostly in shadow, but I could see the moonlight glinting off its pin-like legs as it tottered obscenely towards the room. I held my breath as it came lumbering into the doorframe out of the shadows. Its face twisted sideways and it gazed at me. It went to step in and I readied my book to get up and start reading. It stepped, looked down and stopped. It stared at me and its roughly hewn mouth pulled into a thin line. It turned and disappeared down the hallway. I fell back into the bed and stared up at the ceiling. I woke up at eight with the morning sun having replaced the moonlight shining through the window. I lay thinking about the creature. I hesitate to use the word golem. It doesn't match the mindless description the books had portrayed. However, I agreed with the tailor. The creature may have once been a golem, but it was more than that now, and clearly I couldn't rehash old techniques. I needed a new one, and by tonight. Luckily for me, if my university days had taught me anything, it was how to urgently motivate myself when the need required. Obviously, this was usually cramming for an exam and not trying to not die. It took me most of the day. I paced around my house, watching nervously as the sun grew deep red in the sky. But eventually, I found the answer, or at least what I hoped would be. I then spent another hour rigging it up, by which point the sun was almost setting. Pleased with my handiwork, I grudgingly tried to force down some dinner before heading to bed to wait. I'd laid the carpet back down, and the way into my room was now free of clutter, leaving free passage from the door to my bed. I fucking hope this works. I checked my laptop one last time and climbed under the duvet, taking the remote control with me. It came earlier that night, as if out of frustration with its previous failure. Also, this time, I hadn't drifted off to sleep. I was ready and waiting. Unable to see it from my position, I could only hear it approach. I could see it now. It had bent its lanky frame over to fit into the doorframe, giving it the impression of a tangled wooden arachnid. Its face scanned the floor of the room momentarily before it brought its gaze up to me. It lurched forward across the threshold, skittering inhumanly into the room, the moonlight casting elongated shadows of it across the walls. In one articulated hand, it held a needle and thread. It cocked its head and looked at the bed as a nurse would regard a patient. I went cold and felt my heart freeze in my chest. It ends now, I told myself. 
trying to will my panicking body into action. Finally, I hit the power button on the remote control, and with a gentle whirring sound, my projector span up into life. I'd strung it up from the ceiling with a lattice of garden twine, the lens pointing at exactly the point in which the creature was stood. The lens flared to life and cast the shape of a dark black pentagram onto the beige carpet. I climbed out of bed, all concern now leaving me, and picked up the book I'd squirreled under the bed, face down on the appropriate page. I started to read aloud, praying I'd got the pronunciation right. When I'd finished, the creature was stood motionless. It had dropped the threaded needle. The slight quivering of the beautifully articulated mahogany fingers, the only sign of movement. I guess the lack of complete mobilization was to do with my clumsy recital of the incantation. Not wanting the creature to regain its mobility, I stepped forward and, whilst trying not to vomit, grabbed my file from the bedside table and sanded away at its forehead until there was a smooth patch of mahogany where the letter E had been. Well met, my friend, I thought as I felt its animus fade and fingers fall still. I turned off the projector, and as the pentagram disappeared, the mannequin fell to the floor with a thud. At the same time, the wave of nausea came over me, and my legs, equally weak, gave up on me, and I fell back onto the bed. The young couple stood in the brightly lit loft space and asked me the same question that all the viewers had. Why doesn't the loft space run the whole length of the house? And I answered with the same response I always gave. Just the quirk of these old houses. I think the space was sealed up after the water tank was removed. I don't tell them about the false wall or what is behind it. No one ever needs to know. Having a loved one go off to war is tough. Not knowing how they're getting on or whether they'll ever come home, it's a nightmare. But in this tale, shared with us by author M.J. Pack, we experience the untold joy of a mother when her son returns from war. Unfortunately, however, her other son feels like something is amiss. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Aaron Lillis, and Atticus Jackson. So pay attention to your sibling when they return. Are they the same as they used to be? I mean, of course, war changes people, doesn't it? But is that enough of an explanation for the fact that Wayne came back wrong? My brother Wayne was stationed at Anhoa Basin in South Vietnam. 
He'd been drafted in December of 1969 and shipped out shortly after that. Unlike a lot of unlucky soldiers, he came back six months later. I was only a kid, nine years old and unable to really understand why my brother had to leave or what happened while he was overseas. What I do understand is what happened when he came back. My mother told it differently, but this is what I remember. When Wayne showed up on our doorstep that mild day in June, my mother nearly fainted. We hadn't heard anything from the army about his whereabouts in the last month or so, and she was shocked. I remember she let out this weird sort of laugh that turned into a song. She threw her arms around Wayne and cried. I stood in the hallway, staring at them. I didn't want to give him a hug. In fact, I didn't even want him to come inside the house. He was still dressed in his army fatigues and heavy government-issued boots. His face was slack, his hair was long, and he hadn't shaved. He had this weird, thousand-yard stare. There was something wrong with Wayne, and I knew it right away. My mother brought him inside, still weeping. She demanded I give my brother a hug, tell him how much we'd missed him and how happy we were that he was home. I I don't want to. Michael, you come give Wayne a hug right this instant. I hesitated. I remember walking toward him slowly, wondering why I wasn't happy to see him. Why I felt this eerie sensation inside, like I was falling down an endless black pit. Wayne stared at me. I put my arms around his neck and gave him a weak hug. He smelled terrible. He didn't hug me back. My mother asked him what he wanted, if there was anything he needed, anything she could do for him. I'm hungry. She cooked him a huge dinner, all his favorites, fried chicken, mashed potatoes, mac and cheese, green beans... The three of us sat at the table to eat, but I couldn't touch my food because of the smell. Wayne devoured everything. When I didn't eat mine, he pointed at my plate. Can I have it? I pushed it over to him at once. He finished that and all the rest on the table within minutes. My mother told him his room was just the way he'd left it, that he'd feel better after a good night's sleep. I'm still hungry. She ignored him. She seemed to be ignoring everything strange about him. I didn't understand it then, but with my own kids now, I guess I know better. She just wanted to embrace the fact that her son, against all odds, was home and safe. I woke up in the middle of the night and heard a rummaging sound coming from the kitchen. I was almost too scared to look, but with Wayne being gone, I'd felt really protective of my mother. I was the man of the house and needed to make sure she was safe. And I guess for a minute, I'd forgotten that Wayne wasn't gone anymore. Wayne was in the kitchen, digging with both hands into an orange casserole dish, scooping handfuls of tuna noodle surprise into his mouth. He didn't even look at me when I turned on the light. Over the next week, all Wayne did was eat. He never changed out of his fatigues. He didn't shower or brush his teeth at night, and I wasn't even sure that he was sleeping. I started locking my bedroom door, just in case. My mother ignored it all and started going to the grocery store every day. When I tried to talk to her about it, I got a sharp slap to the face and was told Wayne had been through something horrible. To not appreciate the gift of his safe return was blasphemous. Wayne kept eating. He never gained a pound. One night, I woke up to the sound of metal clattering on the kitchen floor. I found Wayne on his hands and knees. He was eating out of our dog's bowl. The fridge was open, ransacked and empty. You're... you're not my brother. I finally put my finger on what 
I hadn't been able to since he came home. It wasn't just the smell or the stare or the way he spoke. It wasn't even the eating. I knew my brother. I loved my brother. And my brother wasn't there. For the first time since his return, he smiled. A big, lip-stretching grin. There was nothing behind his eyes. I was terrified, trembling. But I forced myself to ask, Where's Wayne? Whatever was pretending to be my brother kept grinning and put two fingers to its temple, one thumb sticking straight up in mimicry of a gun. It still smiled that terrible smile, bits of kibble stuck to its face. And just like that, it stood up, made its way to the front door, and walked into the night. Wayne never came back. But the next day, someone else showed up at our front door. A set of grim-faced military men who informed my mother that Wayne had been killed in the line of duty. This time, she fainted. It took my mother almost a month to recover. When she did, she refused to talk about Wayne. I asked her how he could have been here, eating all our food, smelling that terrible smell when he was killed in Vietnam. Every time I asked, I got the same response. I had imagined the whole thing. Wayne was never here. Until one time, when she gave me the same face-stinging slap that she'd given me when I asked about Wayne in the beginning. I stopped asking after that. My mother went to her grave with that lie, clinging to it the same way she clung to the American flag presented to her at Wayne's funeral. But I know what happened. I remember. And this morning, when I got up to fix myself some breakfast, the fridge was already wide open and empty. And you know what else I remember? That smell. That's why I wanted to share this story. Because I'm afraid that Wayne is back. Again. Being at a new school never gets any easier, even when you're an adult starting university. Those big buildings, those sprawling campuses, it's so hard to get a grip on the layout. In this tale, shared with us by author David Yates, we meet a man starting his university career who just can't get his head around the architecture. Performing this tale is David Alt. So remember, it's okay to ask for directions. But can you really blame this guy for getting lost? After all, the school doesn't seem entirely normal. It defies all logic with its twisted passages. They say the architect who designed this place made the windows narrow to prevent people jumping out. They say he killed himself by jumping off the roof of another of his creations. They say that's pretty ironic, isn't it? This place is my university residence. It's one of the newer residences built at the very top of a hill, a long walk from the main campus. It's a twisted red brick monster erected in the 70s as a monument to bad taste. 
It doesn't have the history of the founding hall or the crisp cleanliness of a new residence. It's 40 years ago's modern. The interior is a checkerboard drawn freehand, a B.F. Skinner maze with no cheese at the end. Rooms are in rows of two, max, and from most vantage points you can see four hallways, all at weird angles to each other. Staircases are sometimes near entrances and sometimes not. The walls are chipped red-faced brick and the ceiling a plaster that was once white. The grey floor tiles are stained with decades of spills and throw-up. It's a pain to navigate. Every other residence, if you want to find your room, you give them a number. Every other residence, you're on the nth floor, you're that near or that far, and the important places are easy to find. Every other residence, you're not still getting lost in the third week of first year. Coming back after a long day of lectures, I'd taken a wrong turn at the front hall closet, or maybe taken the left staircase instead of the right, perhaps I'd come in a different entrance or gone a floor too far. Whatever had happened, I was disoriented and far from any familiar room number. Standing in front of room 87, I decided to retrace my steps. Standing in front of room 99, I decided I'd retraced wrong. Standing in front of room 114, I realized I was hopelessly lost. Standing in front of room 3, I started to question my sanity. Mine was room 64. Since my first day in the residence, I had been careful to trace the exact path from the main entrance to my room, distressed by the multitude of turns the sub-warden had led me through when I moved in. I also knew where the bathroom was, but beyond that, I dared not venture. I'd been in the common room once during orientation week, but had no idea how to get there again. As I stood before room 76, I noticed how quiet the place was. Normally, there was plenty of noise in the residence, conversation in the halls and music from the rooms, but at that moment, the only sound I could hear was the buzz of the energy-saving lights. I stood still and strained my ears for even some sound from the outside world. Cars, birds, anything. I heard nothing. I strode to the nearest window at the end of a short, dead-end hallway. It was long and narrow. Its glass was frosted, which made it difficult to see anything beyond other than vague blues and greens. No sound penetrated. I stepped away from the window. To my right was the door to room 130, the highest I had yet seen. The red door loomed over me, its brass number plate, a cold, judging eye. Wasn't I just at room 76? I looked to my right and saw room 129, and to my left was room 128. I turned from that door and walked into the opposite hallway. There I found rooms 134 to 138. I retraced my steps to the Nexus and found room 127 in the hallway to my left. At the end of this hall, I came to a staircase and followed it down to the lower floor. I just had to count down the room numbers to get back to 64. 140 was the first room number I found on this lower floor. Initially, I thought it must be mislabeled, but the surrounding rooms were 141 and up. Confused, I returned to the stairs and went down yet another floor. 
When I was halfway down the stairs, my shoe snagged against a knobbly bit of step and I tumbled down the rest of the flight, banging my face and limbs and landing in a bruised heap at the bottom. After I had lain a while, the pain dulled and I picked myself up and looked around. There was something different about this part of the building. The face brick walls were darker and smoother and the ceiling a brighter white. I limped out of the stairwell and looked down the hall. On the doors were simple but distinct rounded shapes that initially appeared to be numerals but weren't, like symbols that had been rejected from inclusion in the numeric system when it was first created. Suddenly, I could hear laughter from the floor below, followed by the buzz of conversation. I must have chanced upon the common room. I returned to the staircase, which I descended one step at a time, carefully watching my step to prevent any further mishap. After picking my way down, I found myself staring not into another hallway, but through an open door into the common room. This was a large area festooned with old, ugly couches, upholstered in a mouldy shade of green. Ten or fifteen students melted across the couches, watching a muted football game through static on a TV mounted in a corner of the ceiling. I glanced around for a familiar face, but saw none. I was new and didn't know many of my peers yet. As I stepped past the doorframe and into the room proper, the buzz of conversation stopped. The few heads that had turned to see me were now joined by more and more until the entire room was looking at me. Hi, I'm trying to find my room. It's number 64. Could anyone give me directions? I'm new here. A smattering of laughter greeted my request. I resented them for that. It seemed perfectly reasonable for a newcomer to get lost routinely during the first few weeks in such a large and, and strange building. A tall guy stood up from one of the couches and approached me, dragging his feet. He had on a puffy dressing gown, the same colour as the couches. I could tell he was one of the sub-wardens, though not one I remembered meeting. Beneath the shabby dressing gown, he wore a dress shirt and tie and smart black trousers with fuzzy slippers which glided across the threadbare carpet. The slippers were the same colour as the dressing gown and the couches. Maybe they were a set. When he reached me, he held out a hand but said nothing. As I shook his hand, it occurred to me that conversation had not resumed since I'd come in. They'd all just stared, occasionally laughing. I thought back to the buzz I'd heard coming down the stairs. I did not recall hearing any clear English words spoken. The sub-warden held our handshake for far too long. His grip tightened. I tried to extricate my hand from his grip, but it was no use. I looked into the subwarden's face and saw a smile stretch across it. He had too many teeth. An excited chatter arose among the students seated around us, but again I could not make out any of the words used. It wasn't any language I could identify. The more I listened, the more I was certain that the sounds they made weren't conversation at all, just noise that gave the same impression. The subwarden had still not released his grip, but apart from his smile now spreading further across his face than should have been physically possible, he made no other move. All around me, the students opened their mouths too wide. The subwarden would not release my hand, so I kicked the subwarden in the shin. Hard, twice. 
His grip released and I staggered back. He fell back onto a couch and a deep howl rose from his throat. The others joined in the howl and the room rose as one. I bolted out of there, slamming the door behind me. I ran, dashing down hallways, taking left and right turns without heeding where I was going. When I got to a staircase, I scrambled up or stampeded down. The residence molded itself around my exodus, providing me with turn after turn until I was quite certain I'd gotten as far away from the common room as possible. I rested my hands on my knees, taking heaving breaths. I had escaped the horrors in the common room. But I was no closer to room 64 and home, and who knew how far I was from the exit. The doors no longer bore bronze plates with numbers or provided me with any indication of where I might be. It's okay. This is just a dream. It's all just a dream. None of this can be real. Soon, I'll wake up. I knew that was a lie. Not sure what else to do, I continued through zigzagging halls. I passed door after door, all unmarked, one much like another. A few times I tried knocking, but got no response. Increasingly desperate, I tried the handles, but the doors were all locked. No sounds came from beyond any of them. The environment was monotonous and unchanging, or so I thought, until a ringing in my ears made me conscious that my surroundings had grown quieter. Before, I could hear the low hum of fluorescent lights on the ceiling, but now even those were silent. Silent. And gone. I scanned the ceiling for the bulbs or even empty sockets, but saw only plain white plaster, featureless and unadorned. Featureless. The ceiling plaster was uncracked. The bricks in the walls were uniform in size and texture, crisscrossed with a grid of perfectly consistent cement. The unnumbered doors were painted an almost cartoonish shade of red. The stairs were even and smooth. Everything was featureless. Perfect. I walked down staircases. I walked up staircases. I tried racing down the building as if I were 50 stories up. I tried racing up the building as if I were in some deep sub-basement. I never found the exit or a window large or clear enough to see out of. I never saw anything but brick walls, wooden doors and wooden stairs. Until I saw an open door. I turned to the opening, expecting it to disappear as soon as I faced it head on, but it did not. Before me was the interior of a student's room. I blinked and rubbed my eyes, but the room remained. What I could see of it was sparsely furnished, a sink at one side and a desk against the far wall in line with the door. In front of the desk, a chair, and on the chair, a student, their back towards me. The student sat unnaturally still. I could see the back of a shaggy brown-haired head and a pair of plaid shoulders beneath it. Hello? My voice sounded discordant in the perfect silence. The student turned to face me, resting an elbow on the chair's back. The mass of wavy brown hair swung around, without a face. I stared at a face-shaped expanse of featureless skin. I wished the door had not been opened. The skin on the bottom half of the face stretched and rippled, and from it there issued forth a strange, muted roar. I ran. 
Again, I found myself racing through hallways, zigging up and zagging down, following semicircular twists, passing rows of red painted and thankfully shut doors. I did not hear the faceless thing behind me. I don't think it tried to follow me. I recalled an emptiness between the chair legs. With a third of each foot on tiled floor, I reassured myself that it couldn't be. I was still here, still whole. I touched my face, eyes, nose, mouth, all still there. I continued walking. There were no more staircases. As I walked, everything around me seemed to simplify and dissolve into rectangular shapes of a single color, more like a flag than a three-dimensional space. It was all the same until it wasn't. I turned a corner and skidded to a halt. I had come, at last, to the end of the hallway. But in front of me was not a final red door or a solid brick wall. In front of me was murky blackness. My legs wobbled and collapsed. I fell sideways, knocking my left shoulder into the wall and the back of my left hand onto the final door. A sharp pain shot through this hand, and I brought it up to my eyes. Red splinters stuck out of my fingers, blood seeping out around the cuts. I pulled at the splinters with my right hand, but to no avail. I dropped my hands to my sides and stared into the void. I had reached the end. There was no escape. There was... nothing. But as I stared into the black, it receded before me, growing smaller and farther away. Its place was taken by even brick walls and an even white ceiling and evenly spaced grey floor tiles. As I watched, the darkness turned and disappeared around a corner. This was not the end after all. I had only imagined it. With nothing else to do, I picked myself up, ready to continue. The pain in my hand had stopped. I glanced at it and saw red. Not blood red. Door red. The splinters had been absorbed. My left hand was whole. It was also the colour and texture of the red door. I attempted to flex my fingers. They moved stiffly. I gently ran a finger of my right hand across a finger of my left. Wooden. I walked around the corner to the newly formed hallway and looked down it. There was the darkness again, still retreating. I looked at my hand. Flesh joined wood at the wrist. As I watched, the wood crept towards the strap of my watch. Oil-like, it spread almost imperceptibly. There was no pain. Ahead of me, the darkness receded. I looked again at the red wood advancing up my arm. Then I conceived a final, desperate idea. I was not going to let myself be consumed by this place. I took a deep breath and stared down the void at the end of the hallway. I crouched down in a sprinter's ready stance. Go! I ran, focusing on the darkness ahead, not looking down. I didn't see where my feet left the floor. I hurtled into space, and I fell. All around me was nothingness. I was finally free from the white and red and grey, free from the twists and turns, free from the faceless things that should not be, free of everything. Until I slammed face first into a red wooden surface. 
For a long time I lay, focused on the pain in my body, determined not to let myself accept that I'd returned to the endless corridors. But something was different. I lay on top of a door, the door suspended in empty space. Something cool pressed on my cheek. I rose up on my hands and knees and saw a metal plate. A number was embossed on it. 64. This number meant something to me, something from long ago, something remote and distant, something important. I reached into my right pocket and pulled out a key. This key was embossed with the same number as the door, 64. I stared at the key for a long time before things clicked into place. When they did, I almost tumbled off the door in my excitement. With a shaking hand, I brought the key to the hole embedded in the door handle and turned it. The door slipped open. I fell. I landed on a rough, familiar surface, the carpet of my room. I sat up and looked around. Everything was as I remembered it. My bed to one side, my desk in the corner, my laptop on my desk, a toothbrush in the cup next to my sink, my door open. And beyond the door, the residence. Uneven, weathered face brick walls, cracked off-white plaster on the ceiling, grey tiles with discoloured splotches. Light, beautiful daylight streaming in from the two narrow windows. I pumped my fists in celebration, but my joy ceased when I caught sight of my left. A wooden fist sculpture painted bright red. In our final tale, we join a group of friends heading out on a dream trip, camping around a series of islands. Islands with a certain legend attached, which all the friends have grown up with. In this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, none of them can settle on what the origins of the legend are. I join Nicole Goodnight, Matthew Bradford, and Jeff Clement in performing this tale. So investigate the islands, speculate about where the legend came from, but you'll never guess. You'll never work out the secret of the Bay of Cats. I'm telling you, it's got to be that island over there. Don't be dumb. It's on the coast. Come on, Dong. Wolf's Island, Bay of Cats. It makes sense. Bro, do you even geography? Bays are fucking inland. The name's symbolic? Waves lapped at the shore as the two bickered over scraps of information, like seagulls fighting over the last french fry. If it devolved into a fist fight, my money was on Pete. Sure, he was small and scrawny, but he was quick on his feet and a lot less prone to tripping over his shoelaces than Dominic. 
I nudged the digital map around with my finger, glancing at them periodically from the corner of my eyes. I'm gonna eat your stupid face. And there we go. They were wrestling now. Was I going to stop them? Hell no. I had better things to do. A hunch to follow. The Bay of Cats, they called it. We'd all heard stories about it, but it was one of those tall fisherman tales you either needed to suspend your disbelief for or be legitimately dumb to believe. My grandpa used to tell me stories about it growing up. The ocean would be quiet for months, sometimes even years. Then, in the dead of night, you'd hear it. The mewling of a hundred cats springing to life one by one in the bay, amplified by the cliffs. It was a sound so loud and so shrill, it would make your ears bleed if you were too close. Fish wouldn't go near the bay. Nets came up barren, lobster cages empty, fishing lines unnipped. Fishermen abandoned it, said it was cursed. Whenever I asked Grandpa where the Bay of Cats was, he'd say he didn't know. Somewhere between Tangier Grand Lake and Boggy Lake. A distance you could travel in 40 minutes by highway, but if you followed the coastline on foot and checked every nook and cranny, it could take as many as two days. It didn't help that no one who shared the story could agree whether the Bay of Cats was on the coastline or on one of the many deserted islands within swimming distance. There were so many contradicting theories as to the location, source of the noise, and origin of the name. Real helpful, right? You must be wondering why we were even bothering to look for it. The answer isn't very exciting. We were three bored U of Dal students, and one drunken night, someone suggested we try to find it. Simple as that. To be fair to Pete, Dom, and I, we weren't just hunting down the Bay of Cats. We talked about going on a camping and sea kayaking trip, and the mission was the soft motivation we needed to finally do that. We'd picked a long weekend, packed our gear, and took off, bringing us back to... I give! I was right. Pete won. Pete and his nuts climbed off Dom's face. He stood over him triumphantly. Classy. That's my middle name. What are you doing over there? Looking for cat-shaped alcoves, like a head or a paw or something. Bro, it ain't supposed to look like a cat. It sounds like one. Maybe. Or maybe some drunk fisherman sailed by something that kind of looked like a cat one night and thought, huh, a bay of cats. And that's where the name comes from. Nah, fam. Everyone knows it's all about the sound. You're drunk. You see an island that looks like a cat. The wind blows. You think it's meowing. Brains are dumb. And prone to suggestion. Yep. Lame. It better not be the wind. Pete looked devastated, like I just set his birthday presents on fire. Dom clapped him on the back. Hey, don't worry, man. I know for a fact it's not wind. It's ghosts. What? What? My great-grandma Ethel told me about it. The crazy one with a million cats? Yes, the one with a million cats. But look, listen. If anyone 
knows what cats sound like. It's her. Plus, she's been there. What? Your grandma's been to the Bay of Cats? And you're only bringing this up now? I'm pretty sure I told you guys. I'm pretty sure you did it. Ditto. Unless we were too drunk? Which, to be fair, would be fair. Oh, shit. Well, strap in, my beautiful young friendos. Let me tell you a tale. Regale us, oh great storyteller. When I was but a wee lad, nearly eight years of age, my nan sat me upon her lap and told me of the village she grew up in near Halifax. You gonna talk like that the whole time? <clears throat> there was some dude in the village who hated cats. Better? Anyways, he was a fish merchant, and every day, these rowdy little tomcats would jump in his stall and run off with fish. One day, he decided he'd had enough. He brought a burlap sack and scooped up the first cat he could catch. He tied a strong knot, brought it to the bay, and chucked it into the ocean to drown. The next day, he caught another and did the same. And another, and another. It wasn't long before he'd killed dozens of cats this way. One night, my nan and her friend followed him to the bay, hoping to confront him. They watched from high above a rocky cliff. As the full moon hit its peak and the merchant reared his arm to chuck another bag, meows erupted from the waters. It was disorienting, Nan said, like an aural avalanche. She couldn't tell up from down and almost slipped right off the cliff. She explained it was the spirits of the drowned cats crying out, unable to find rest until they got revenge on the merchant. And revenge they got. The guy lost his footing near the edge of the water and fell in. That's when Nan saw hundreds of little cat ears in the water, bobbing closer to the merchant, surrounding him. They pulled him deeper as he thrashed and screamed, trying to get back to shore. But he was outnumbered. His splashing suddenly stopped. The tide turned red. The night went quiet. <laughs> Bullshit. Screw you guys, you don't know. My brother says it was a science experiment gone wrong. The government was like trying to crossbreed catfish with cod, and the results are these mutated catfish whose screams sound like cats. And you think my story's dumb? Well, at least I don't think it's fucking ghosts. Well, you're both wrong. It's not ghosts, and it's not mutants. It's a lot of booze and a bit of wind. Mutants. 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 Dom shoved Pete, and for a second, I thought we were going to get round two of their battle for dominance. Sadly, the fight fizzled out before it even started. Since Pete had beaten Dom earlier and I hadn't found any points of interest on the map, we went with Pete's idea of paddling to Wolf's Island. It was a small island, easily traversed in, gosh, under ten minutes, I think? I'm not trying to be vague, it's just that we spent that day hopping from island to island and they all started looking alike after a while. Most were too small to even have names, so to remember which small landmass was which? Yeah. Point is, it and the others were a bust. Shortly before sunset, we pitched our tent on one of the landmasses, got wasted to all hell, and then called it a night.
The next morning, I woke up to Dom cooking a mix of beans and ravioli. Yes, it smelled as disgusting as it sounds. He looked tired with big bags under his eyes. And yet he was irritatingly cheerful. Morning, nerds. Pete followed me, rubbing sleep from his eyes. What the hell is that? A breakfast of champions. Is it um, edible? Yup, I call it the sizzling Saturday special. I woke up at 3 a.m. to fish these raviolis myself. How thoughtful of you. Did you really wake up at 3? Not gonna lie, you, you kind of look like you did. I mean, yeah, but not for the ravioli. I thought I heard something and went to check it out. You hold up, and you didn't wake us? Not for lack of trying. You were both out cold. Sophie was covered in drool. Hey, hey, hey. It's called organic facial moisturizer. And Pete, I was 80% sure you were clinically dead until you suddenly snorted. I sleep like the grave, for I am dead inside. So, what woke you? Dom smiled nervously as he served up his concoction. I took a bite and it was surprisingly not that bad. The beans had absorbed the flavor of tomato sauce, so it mostly tasted like canned ravioli. It was a high-pitched noise. Like, uh, I don't know. It cut through the air, kind of like a tornado siren. Was it blaring? Did it sound at all like meowing? Which way was it coming from? How long did it last? Do you think it came from the Bay of Cats? Jesus, slow down. One at a damn time. It sounded like what you'd expect a dog whistle to sound like if humans could hear it. It kept going off, but not at regular intervals. Confirmed. Dom is a werewolf. Run for your lives. Uh-oh. And tonight's the full moon. <laughs> Which way was it coming from? Hard to tell. Sound carries over water. I circled the island trying to pinpoint it. I think it was a bit farther northeast. I wish I could be more precise, but that's as good as it's going to get. Hey, a lead's a lead, and this is the best we've got. Guys, um, I have a confession to make. What? What's wrong? The shrieking. I, I know what it was. Dom, look, your mom and I... We're in love. Oh, for fuck's <laughs> sake. Dom somehow managed to swallow his murderous tendencies so we could enjoy breakfast in relative peace. As I ate, I pulled out my phone and loaded up the map app. Unfortunately, it wouldn't connect to my network. We must have been in a dead zone because neither Dom nor Peter's phone connected either. In hindsight, we should have rented a GPS for our adventure. After breakfast, we packed up and took to our kayaks. We spent the morning following the coast north with the intention of circling back island side in the afternoon. We lunched on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at the farthest point of the imaginary boundary we'd drawn that morning looking at the horizon, and then made a very wide U-turn to come back the long way around. We all knew when we'd found the Bay of Cats. As we wove through a maze of rocky waters, it came into view, and we knew this was it. High cliffs, a wide bay perfect for swimming, and a peculiar wind tunnel that gave it the illusion of having a whole different weather system. A sort of microclimate, I think is the scientific name. 
There was something eerie and captivating about it. It felt alive as though it was the mouth of a stone titan. The way the waves lapped at the shore, they were less pushed from the ocean and more pulled towards the bay as though inhaled. And the ocean floor? It had gone from teeming with life to barren to, once we reached shallower waters, a thick mess of saturated brownness as though the ocean floor had been freshly dredged, leaving its sand hanging in the air. Uh, in the water. In any case, we knew. We felt it in our heart of hearts, in our very souls, in... Guys, why the hell are we stopping? Or maybe we didn't all know we had found it. Dom and I exchanged a look, though. He definitely knew. This is it. This is the Bay of Cats. What? Here? Really? There's something in the air. I think Sophie farted. Harney, hi, hi. I swear, you let it rip on your kayak one time, and they never let you forget it. Let's battle to shore, set up camp. Are you guys sure about this? It looks like all the other islands around here to me. We're heading home tomorrow. If you're wrong, this is it. We don't get a second chance. I'm sure. I am too. Besides, nothing's stopping us from coming back next weekend. Don't be so dramatic. Fine, lead the way. I can't see Jack's shit in this water, and I cannot afford to scratch this butte. She's a rental. I thought you had your own kayak. Yeah, so it turns out there was a leak. And by leak, I mean rats got to it. Oof. What do you mean, got to it? Chewed it up real good. Rats don't chew through plastic. Tell that to my planters. Their teeth might be tiny, but they're sharp. They'll tear through just about anything, let me tell you. Never underestimate a hungry rodent. Now come on, lead us in. We were careful in our approach, tentatively prodding at the water with our paddles to check for rocks and fighting the waves trying to draw us in a little too fast. We still had a few hours left of sunlight, so we could afford to take our time. The shore was remarkably smooth and clean. There were no seashells, trash, or seaweed. The absence of the ladder made it a lot harder to tell how high the tide went. We guesstimated based off the cliff erosion and then gave ourselves another few extra meters in case we were wrong. As a final precaution, we anchored our kayaks in a V formation around our little campsite. That way, even if we were taken by surprise, we'd be able to hop on quickly rather than try to swim down to them in the dark. The downside was having to carry them all the way up, but that was a small price to pay for peace of mind. We pitched our tents, and then Pete pulled out a bottle of whiskey he'd stashed away. Let's get this party started. Food first. I'm dying. And I don't want to get shit-faced. Not tonight. I get it. You want to be sharp so you don't miss anything. I gotcha. One shot with supper? Sounds good. Perfect. Dom surprised us with three cans of Thanksgiving in a can, which was just... ew. But at the same time, after a day of kayaking, maybe not that bad. Gotta say, I didn't hate the turkey and potatoes layer. Carrots and parsnips weren't bad either. I don't even know what the hell a parsnip is, but it tasted good mashed with the carrots. We ate, we took a shot, and we got cozy in our sleeping bags. I kept my eye on the tide, but it only ever went about halfway up the shore. 
As it got darker out, we started telling scary stories. The usual stuff. The hook man, the one where the girl thinks her dog is licking her hand, but it's some dude. Stolen kidneys, you know, that kind of stuff. And so she called the operator, and they told her, Ma'am, leave immediately. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Classic. I shat a brick at a sleepover once because my mom called while I was telling it. Anyone know the one about the maiden and the fisherman? Shit, I haven't heard it since I was a kid. I don't remember how it goes. Oh, I love that one. Maiden and fisherman. Never heard of it. No, your new Brunswickian ass wouldn't, would it? This is an old Nova Scotian ghost story, eh? I've been living here for three years. Surely my ass has enough Nova Scotia in it to hear it. Come on. Can you tell, Dom? I only remember the Cliff Notes version. <clears throat> Everyone who was anyone knew the McMurrays. They were the wealthiest family in town. Mr. McMurray had his fingers in every pie. A real small-town business tycoon. They had only one child. A beautiful daughter named Peggy. Mr. McMurray knew whoever she married would stand to inherit his fortune. Naturally, he was very picky. He wanted to find someone from an equally good family who wouldn't squander his wealth. Alas, the heart wants what the heart wants. And Peggy fell madly in love with a poor but handsome fisherman. It's always about dem abs. <laughs> Start doing crunches. Maybe you'll attract a rich hot chick of your own, Petey Pie. Anyways, where was I? Peggy and the fisherman fell in love. Right. They courted in secret for months. Finally, the fisherman earned enough to buy her a modest ring and asked her father for her hand in marriage. The father gave him a single look, saw his unkempt hair, calloused hands, pauper's clothes, and he refused. He forbade Peggy from ever seeing him again. Hmm, just like me and your mom. I swear, one of these days, I'll throw you into a vat of bloodthirsty sharks. <clears throat> Anywho, love found a way, as love is wont to do. The couple got married in secret, knowing Mr. McMurray would have to respect the covenant. He did. However, not all was well. Under the guise of offering his son-in-law a chance to prove himself, he gifted him a state-of-the-art fishing vessel and sent him out to sea on a stormy night. In actuality, the father had sabotaged him, gifting an old leaky mess of a ship repainted to look new. The fisherman was lost at sea, presumed dead. Peggy was inconsolable. She cried herself to sleep every night for weeks. Until one stormy night, when she heard her husband's voice carried on the wind. Come, my beloved, I have a message for you. She peeked out the window and saw his silhouette standing in the waves. She couldn't believe her eyes. He'd come back to her. She ran outside to join him. But before she could even reach the shore, her father scooped her up and dragged her inside. This went on for years. With every storm, she'd hear him call to her and see him standing in the waves. Her father locked her in her room, telling her she'd gone mad, that she was imagining him. 
Gaslighting 101. The day before she was set to remarry. Forced into it by her father, of course. Mr. McMurray suddenly died. That night came the biggest storm their town had ever seen. Shutters shuddering, the wind whipping store signs back and forth, waves as tall as houses. Peggy heard her fisherman call. Come, my beloved. I have a message for you. There was no one to stop her, so she ran out wearing only her pure white nightgown, which flowed in the breeze, giving her a ghostly, ethereal appearance. She reached the water's edge and called back, I'm here, my darling. The fisherman's back was turned to her. Waves crashed against him, but he was unaffected. For a moment, she was afraid she'd mistaken him for a rock. He spoke again. Come closer, my beloved. I have a message for you. She tiptoed into the ice-cold water, receding waves pulling her in up to her waist. She barely felt the cold. Her heart was swelling with love. His silhouette started to turn towards her slowly. Lightning struck. And she saw. It's happening. The cats! Yeah! The meow came out of nowhere. It was indescribably loud, yet distant, like a kitten's whimper played through an amplifier straight into my ears. It hurt, like actual physical pain. The single mule turned into two, then three, then more than I could count. They were coming from every direction, firing out of the bay and bouncing off the cliffs. I stood up. If I hadn't been watchful of my alcohol consumption, I could have sworn I was drunk. My legs felt like rubber and my head was spinning. My figurative nerves were shot to all hell. It was like someone had pulled them taut and was playing one of those super tense, pre-jumpscare horror movie scores on them. Weirdest of all, for some reason, I had this incredible compulsion to run into the water. I didn't know why. Maybe to stifle the noise? It looked like the others were feeling it as well. Dom was making little jerky back-and-forth motions as though he couldn't commit to either running to the water's edge or going to the kayak. We needed a leader to tell us what to do, but no one stepped up. Dom finally made up his mind and started unhooking his kayak. Pete followed suit. It took me a few extra seconds for my nerves to rebound and for me to get with the program. My fingers are shaking as I tried to untie my knots. Meanwhile, we were still hearing those deafening meows. This is our chance! Come on, get those kayaks to the water! Let's get a closer look! I wish I brought earplugs. Why didn't anyone think to bring earplugs? Limited space? Oh, thank goodness we used our space wisely, and only for important stuff, like boobs. Nay, you weren't complaining last night when you were drinking all my beer. Your beer? What about all my food you were eating? Dude, chill the hell out. We had to focus on why we were there. We were about to be the first people to uncover the mystery of the Bay of Cats, damn it. The boys calmed down and I finally untied my kayak and hoisted it above my head. The tide was low, so we were going to have to carry it further than we did coming in, but on the bright side, we were going downhill, so to speak. All right. Everyone ready? Yep. Let's go. 
I was focused on my feet, trying not to trip as we inched our way to the water's edge. Because of this, I didn't notice myself branching away from the two. Not a huge distance, maybe like 10 to 15 meters? Something stopped me as I reached wet sand. I could hear the splash of the two kayaks hit the water and the boys talking to one another, but my eyes were locked on the shape at my feet. It looked like a... a shell? Not a seashell, but an eggshell. It was about the size of a football, but rounder? I set my kayak down on the sand and crouched down to pick it up. Sure enough, that's exactly what it was. It had a beige-ish brown color to it. The inside was coated with a mucusy film. It was a bit sturdier than a chicken egg, but not so much that I couldn't easily crack it if I applied pressure. Look, cat ears, just like Nan said. I looked up and saw Dom and Pete knee deep in the water about to hop on their kayaks. In the bay were hundreds of little cat ear-like triangles and pairs popping in and out of the waves. I couldn't believe my eyes. Out of all the theories, Dom's stupid ghost cat story was the least realistic, and yet, there they were. Ghost cats. He and Peter climbed into their respective kayaks and paddled towards the ears. I was still pushing mine into the water at that point, transfixed by the sight of the ears slowly converging on the two. They kind of looked like iron powder to Dom and Pete's magnets. Uh, looks like they're coming for us. Is this safe? You've never drowned a cat before, right? Of course not. Then we're safe. They have no reason to hurt us. They're... Ah! Oh, what the fuck? Wait. Dom started swatting his paddle in the water erratically. The second time he swung it over his shoulders, the end was gone. It looked like it had been chewed to all hell. They're not cats! They're not cats! They're not cats! He kept stabbing at the water, his paddle becoming shorter and shorter. I was shocked, at a loss for what to do. Peter looked confused. Whatever Dom was seeing, Pete couldn't see. Dom's boat suddenly capsized when I saw his arms hugging Pete's kayak. The shark! Now! What's going on? As Pete tried to backpedal, the cats chewed straight up to his paddle's drip rings in a matter of seconds. He got spooked and dove out to join Dom's sandwich between their two kayaks. I couldn't see either of them from my ankle, and for a moment I thought they'd both been dragged under. Thankfully, they came back into view swimming past the kayaks, going faster than Olympic athletes, trying to distance themselves from the cats. As soon as they hit a shallow patch, they pushed themselves to their feet and ran in what looked like slow motion due to the water's drag. Their kayaks started to sink. I squinted hard, trying to see what on earth was causing it, and that's when a pair of cat ears dove, swinging the creature's torso out of the water. They clutched the sinking kayak like a koala to a branch. They were... mermaids? No, mer-babies? They were grotesque little things, about the size of the egg I'd found. They had grayish skin and a nasty underbite with sharp little teeth like piranhas that chewed through plastic and wood like crackers. Their stubby little tails whipped along the water's edge, black in color and with curled, pointed ends similar to cat ears. Their hands were sticky and webbed with three, I guess you could call them fingers, which ended in sharp claws. Their faces were bloated with baby fat and speckled with soulless black fish eyes, coated in a mucous membrane that seemed to reflect moonlight. Dom face-planted and the motion snapped me out of my stupor. 
I docked my kayak and tumbled onto shore. I figured as long as we were on dry land, we were safe. When there was almost nothing left of Pete and Dom's kayaks, a few cat ears separated from the pack and swam in pursuit of my friends. One got close and Dom let out a cry of pain. Pete doubled back to drag him out of the water. Blood was trickling out of Dom's right ankle where a little chunk of flesh had been bitten clean off. With Dom leading against him, Pete ran a few meters away from the water's edge where he finally slowed down to catch his breath. They likely came to the same conclusion as me. We were safe on dry land. Unfortunately, we were wrong. Dead wrong. Some of the merbabies did stop at the shoreline, but one flopped forward like a seal, dug its small hands into the sand, and propelled itself forward. The others followed, mewing hungrily. The sound was nauseating. Not that it was gross, it just... It, it did something to me. It made me feel too dizzy to stand straight. And again, I was overwhelmed with the desire to dive into the water to block it out. Just as it looked like the merbabies were about to catch up to my friends, Dom did the unthinkable. He shoved Pete to the ground and limped forward on his own. Hey! It's you or me! I felt my hands go numb and shocked. I was disgusted, but at the same time, a little part of me understood. I fell to my knees helplessly, trying but failing to call Pete's name. To, I don't, I don't know, encourage him? To everyone's surprise, the merbabies ignored my fallen friend and launched themselves on Dom. I'm honestly not sure if they were drawn in by the trail of blood or if they decided Pete didn't have enough meat on his bones to be worth the effort. I looked away as they ripped chunks of skin, exposing Dom's leg bones and felling him like a tree. In my peripheral vision, I could see Pete slowly standing up, bewildered. As the feeding frenzy began, the dizzying meows turned into angry yowls of rival cats, and I suddenly felt able to move again. Pete took his chance and started running towards me, but he hesitated when Dom begged for help. As much as they argued, Pete cared about them. Pete, run! I shoved my kayak back into the water while a sobbing Pete abandoned Dom. Thank goodness. The merbabies weren't going to be distracted long. As I boarded the kayak and kicked away from the shore, I think Pete genuinely thought I was going to leave him behind. I considered it, but then I saw a look of horror in his eyes. No, I wasn't doing that to him. He wasn't going to turn into a pile of blood and bones like Dom. Keep going. I'm just breaking away from the beach for speed. Swim to me. I made the mistake of looking up. They were eating Dom's bones, too, starting at the extremities. Her little gleaming eyes fell on us, as though to say, you're next. Pete hit the water, and I outstretched my paddle to pull him closer. I swung him to the front, and he climbed aboard. The kayak nearly tipped over, but we somehow managed to find our balance. Sit-on-top kayaks are a bit easier in that regard. He hugged the bow like his life depended on it, and I started paddling harder and faster than I had ever paddled before, heading towards the ocean proper. There's one swimming this way. Fast. I couldn't look behind me. Not if I wanted to keep paddling. I imagined one merbaby breaking from the pack to come for us. I felt the strength draining from my arms. 
What are you doing? Don't stop! The kayak started listing to the left, and I realized I was slouching. It was like my bones had turned to jelly, and my skin alone couldn't hold up my body. I... I can't... I felt something wet and cold whipping against my right side. No doubt to make us roll over. The sharp sting snapped me out of it, and with Pete's help, we balanced the kayak. A pair of ears circled us, and I pulled the paddles out so they wouldn't get chewed and leave us dead in the water. It was hard to tell since I'd only seen them from a distance, but the cat ears looked bigger than the others. There also seemed to be a bit more intelligence in the way it was attacking. Where the others had simply eaten around the cookie to get the icing, this one was trying to knock the cookie away to get directly to the sweet stuff. The ears dove, and if my observations were any indication, that meant... The merbaby's head and torso emerged from the water. Its sharp claws latched onto the side, and its tail started whipping the surface furiously, rocking the kayak. Now I was sure. This one was bigger than the others. A toddler rather than a baby. Its head was even larger, but bloat had given way to smooth skin spreading outward at the neck like a frilled lizard. Its sharp teeth were gnashing at the air, moving closer and closer to my arm. I couldn't tell anymore whether it was trying to flip the boat or climb aboard. From the corner of my eyes, I spotted Pete pulling the bottle of whiskey out of his jacket. I couldn't help but think that this wasn't the right moment to be drinking. He broke the bottle against the bow, and as the mer toddler finally gained enough traction to jump towards me... He punched it. He actually fucking decked it right in the eye, holding the broken bottle. The mer-toddler let out a shrill cry of pain as a geyser of blood spurted from the cuts on its face. It fell into the water. Paddle! They're coming! Go, go, go! I spared only a second to look and saw hundreds of little ears whizzing our way. I started paddling backwards since we were facing the wrong way. Those little fish goblin freaks were coming for us. There was no time to turn. The mer-toddler hadn't stopped its chase, either. I could see it zigzagging awkwardly after us. I progressively spun us around, breath stuck in my throat. The last things I was able to see were the little ears stopping near the wounded mer-toddler. I thought they were going to help it, but its screams told of a different fate. We finally reached the rocky barrier. I maneuvered as best I could, apologizing whenever we scraped against them. He got a little cut up in the process, but... I was going for speed, not accuracy. He did his best to keep the bloody bits out of the water so it wouldn't attract the merbabies. By the time we cleared the bay, I was exhausted, but I couldn't stop. Not until I knew we were safe. Are they still following? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Look. No, yes, no, I don't know. I think we're in the clear. They're not swimming past the rocks, I don't think. I... I kept going for a bit, but as soon as we were able, he climbed into the cockpit area, sat on my lap, and took the paddle so I could rest for a bit. There would be no slowing down, not until we were back on solid land. As we circled towards the mainland, I craned my neck to look at the bay of cats disappearing from view. In the distance, out in the ocean, I saw something moving. I could have sworn I saw a massive black tail with curled, pointed ends like large cat ears. Perhaps a dutiful parent watching over the kids.
The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.